of chapter uh, 19 of the Confession, and we'll be doing so under the, uh, under the theme of the law of God, what it is. Um, I believe it was Aristotle that always talked about definition being the purest form of knowledge, and I think for us to understand the law of God, we need to first understand what God says it is in his word. Uh, we heard in Psalm 19 the psalmist, and it continues over the course of 176 verses where he expresses his love for and delight in God's law. And when we sing or read that very same psalm, we're expressing that same sentiment. Uh, we're taking upon our lips his Holy Spirit-inspired words, and we're affirming our love and our desire to live in obedience to the law of God. And chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession really embodies that same perspective on the law of God. Uh, it underlines a, a scriptural foundation for a deep appreciation for and a deep love for the law of God. And in doing so, it really navigates us safely between those twin errors, those twin errors of what are known as antinomianism, and legalism. Um, antinomianism is a casting off of God's law, saying it doesn't matter anymore, we don't need to live by it anymore. Uh, legalism can be defined as a sort of begrudging outward adherence to the law of God, seeking to somehow earn merit or measure ourselves in the sight of God. And Sinclair Ferguson has I think a helpful observation, he says this, he says, legalism and antinomianism are in fact non-identical twins that emerge from the same womb. Now, why is that? Well, both of them at, at the heart of those two errors is a belief that our Heavenly Father in giving the law really isn't loving, he really doesn't have our best interest in mind in imposing these commands and, and these restrictions upon us. And the only difference is the, the legalist begrudgingly takes on those laws and sort of in an outward way, not from the heart, seeks to follow them. While the antinomian with the same attitude chooses to simply cast off those laws. And here we are reminded of the, the gracious law giver, that the law comes from the hand of a gracious and loving God who intends to do us good. And so this morning, again, we'll be, is it still morning? No, it's, just, it's afternoon now. But this afternoon, we'll be thinking about 1-5 under that theme, what is the law of God? And then and next week, we'll think about what it's for, the uses of, of God's law. And so let's, uh, we could first think about sections one and two, which really out outline, outline pre-fall and post-fall law. Uh, section one begins discussing the law covenant of works, which really shows, which has already been expounded upon in the confession. Back in chapter seven, section two, we read that the first covenant made with Adam was a covenant of works. And for you kids who are 
learning the children's catechism. They call it a covenant of life. Um, uh, the first man was a covenant of works or covenant of life, wherein life was promised to Adam and to his posterity upon the condition of perfect and personal obedience. And so it's being expounded upon here. And part of that covenant of works or covenant of life was God's revelation of his law to Adam. And we don't know how God gave Adam his law, but Colossians 3.10 teaches us that being created in the image of God, that means having a knowledge of the truth. And since we're taught in Romans 2 that even sinful people today still have the law written upon their hearts, it's clear that Adam in his condition knew the principles of God's law with clarity. But we know that Adam fell into sin, and even after the fall, the law continues to be a rule of righteousness. And in fact, God continues to deal with people in terms of the law as a covenant of works. And the question is not whether you will keep the law as a covenant of works. We know that no mere man after the fall can. The question is, have you trusted in the new Adam, Jesus Christ, who conditions of works, that perfect and perpetual obedience, and also paid the penalty of death for our breaking of that covenant? Or for those who reject Jesus, they are putting themselves under that covenant of works and being found first Adam. The confession notes the giving of the law after the fall at Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments with the the two tables of the law, the first four having to do with our duty to God, and then the last six, our duty to man. And when it speaks of the two tables, uh, many commentators and historians think that it wasn't four and six commandments on the two tables, but they were copies, um, sort of like a contract. Um, is signifying an an agreement. And the the question that's often asked, and it's sort of a a misnomer of a question, is, well, was was the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, was that that the covenant of works again? And really the answer is it's, it's an echo of the covenant of works, but it's given to God's people as a covenant of grace. Because as we read the Ten Commandments, uh, what you read before it and after it, assurances of God's grace. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It, those are words of salvation. And it's, it's bookended because afterwards, what do we read of? All of the sacrifices, the ceremonial law, things that assured the people of God's grace. And so for us as God's people, it is part of the covenant of grace because we have trusted in the one who kept it for us. And we obey in and through him and through the power of his spirit. Well, that's pre-fall and post-fall law. But then sections three and four get into the three divisions of the law. And I think this is really helpful uh, to note as we seek to sort out what the Bible is saying when it talks about the law. And... And what parts of the law continue today and 
and which ones are abrogated or done away with. And it first mentions the moral law. And uh, if you have a chance this afternoon, maybe open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, because there you have the moral law. But if you go then to Exodus 22 and 23, you read of what's called the judicial or civil law. And you keep reading in Exodus and go to chapters 25 to 31, you have an outlining of the ceremonial law. And so if there was a a spot I could tell you to go to where you see those divisions very clearly, it would be there in Exodus. But the moral law, as expressed in the Ten Commandments, the moral law is rooted in the character of God. And as we'll see in section 5, it does not change. Because it's rooted in the character of God, it is unchanging. But the ceremony, ceremonial law and judicial laws, they had different purposes, and they therefore have changed, or as the confession says, they've been abrogated or done away with. Uh, the confession says of the ceremonial law, besides this law commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church under age ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions and moral duties, uh, all of which are now abrogated under the New Testament. And I think that's really helpful language. It's the church under age. That's how we should think of our Old Testament brothers and sisters. It was the church under age. that's, That's not insulting them. They did not have the revelation that we did. And what do kids need? They need pictures. They need illustrations. And that's what the ceremonial law was for them. These were these vivid pictures, living illustrations of the gospel. And as I mentioned in the sermon this morning, the Lord himself built in these inadequacies to the ceremonial law. So the people, uh, they were guarded against trusting in the animal sacrifice, trusting against the blood of an animal. They knew that the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. All of those are now done away with because of the complete work of Christ. We're the church grown up. Uh, we, we grow up and, you know, I, I hope uh, Tim and Chris are not uh, still reading picture books. <laughs> but we grow up and we live in the full light of Jesus Christ. And that's really what the book of Hebrews is about urging these people to move on from all of these things. The the judicial law, uh, sometimes called the civil law, and um, the confession again says to to them as a body politic, uh, a civil entity. Um, As a civil entity, he gave them uh, sundry or various judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now uh, further than the general equity thereof require. So uh, basically the judicial laws, remember Israel lived in a time where uh, they were both the church and uh, a nation. Uh, there's no ch- separation of church and state. Um, and although that judicial law has expired, the general equity, in other words, the principles behind those laws remain for us. Um, in other words, we're we're not going to stone someone on the street, stone them to death for breaking the Sabbath day. But what's the general principle there? 
The Lord values the Sabbath day. It's important. It's dangerous for people to forsake the gathering together. And, and we could go on with, with many examples. We, uh, the Lord doesn't um, put ministers to death when they um, introduce things that are not required in, into worship. And yet the general equity, the general principle is still there. When we, we look out at the landscape of the American evangelical church today and we see the things that go on in worship, we, we can be sure that the Lord is greatly displeased with those things. Now we should, I, I think, note in this regard the, the dramatic difference in the manner in which God revealed the moral law and the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial and the judicial laws. Because we read the scriptures carefully, um, God revealed the ceremonial and civil laws through Moses, and Moses wrote them down on paper. But how did God write down the Ten Commandments? In stone with his own finger, symbolizing their permanence. Um, Not perishable paper, but enduring tablets of stone. So the three divisions on the law. And then finally, let's think about the scope of the moral law. And again, the confession says that the moral law does forever bind all, as well as justifies persons as others, to the obedience thereof, and not only in regard to the matter contained in it, but also in respect to the authority of God, the Creator who gave it. Neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. Friends, we we hear this so much today where people say, well, Jesus fulfilled the law and therefore, you know, it doesn't apply to us anymore. Um, that, That is not what Jesus himself said. Jesus fulfilled the law. He upheld held the law. He empowers his people by his spirit to live by the law. And he gave warnings to those who relaxed one of the least of the commandments. And it was G.I. Williamson who has, I think, a a helpful critique of those who deny the continuing relevance of the moral law. He says, of those who deny the permanent relevance of the law, None are to be so sharply condemned as Christians. There are profane Christians who say that Christ has delivered them from the obligation to keep the law. We are not under law, but under grace, they cry, misusing Romans 6.14. Suffice it to say that the truth lies in the opposite direction. The Christian, above all, is obligated to keep the law. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.19 To deny that Christians are obligated to keep the law of God is to deny that Christians are to love God and love their neighbor. For on these two things all the law of God hangs. Matthew 22 And again, this is rooted in what I mentioned in beginning. Phyllis Antinopian is a, a, a character of our God. 
forgetting that he is a God who loves us and who wants what is best for us and his, his law is for our good. And moreover, we, we should ask if the law no longer matters, then why was Jesus born under the law? Why did Jesus have to keep the law? Why did Jesus suffer the wrath and curse of God for our breaking of that law? You see, whether it's antinomianism or it's legalism, both of those subtly imply that Christ died for no reason. So it's Christ himself who shows us the importance of the law. And yes, we struggle to keep it, but we can live by faith knowing that he has saved us by his grace. He's given his Holy Spirit to live within us. And he desires that we live by the law and with the psalmist, you know, experience that same joy and blessing of walking as he did. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would apply these words to our hearts, we pray, Lord, that you would guard us um, against maligning your character, that we would remember that you are indeed a gracious and loving God, Lord, that we would not fall into the error of our first parents, doubting your goodness, but Lord, that we would delight in your law, Lord, that we would seek to live by it, and Lord, that you would Give us assurance of, of our salvation. And Lord, even when we fail, when we break your law and sin, may you assure us of your pardoning mercies and restore us that we may yet again walk in your ways. We pray all this for the glory of Jesus. We pray in his great name. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, take our Psalter hymnals and we'll open to 119. To the B selection, 119B. If you're able to do so, let's stand together. <clears throat> 